Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 12, The Last King in Jorvik. One of the comments I got sent recently was that maybe I could try and go a little bit more slowly in this to allow people to absorb the information I'm giving. So this is my first week doing this, I'm going to speak very slowly and if it means everybody gets bored you can just tell me to speed up again. And thank you by the way Stephen, I really enjoyed getting your email. Last week we talked about Athelstan the Glorious. This week it's the turn of his brother Edmund the Magnificent, Edmund the Just, and Edmund the Deed-Doer. Athelstan ended his reign on a high, but pretty much as soon as he died, Humperty fell off the wall, and Edmund was to spend a fair proportion of his unfortunately short life putting him back together again. Edmund was born in 922, and therefore was just 24 when his brother died. His life and his reign were short, but by the time he died in 945 after a six-year reign, Humpty had indeed been put back where he belonged. The first thing Edmund actually did was to get married to somebody called Elthquith. We know very little about her except that she was later declared a saint and that she was the mother of Edwy and Edgar and died young in 944. Edmund immediately remarried but there were to be no more children. While Edmund was getting hitched Northumbria and the Norsemen were again causing problems. Olaf Guthrithson had been decisively defeated by Athelstan and his 15-year-old brother Edmund at the Battle of Brunenburg in 937, and he'd fled on his ships all the way back to Dublin. But when he heard of Athelstan's death, he clearly felt he should have another go, and he set sail for Northumbria with a fresh army. He appears to have caught Edmund napping, and by the end of 939 he was in possession of York again, apparently without having met any resistance at all. So, safely established in York, Olaf decided he wanted more. Or possibly, he knew from previous experience that the English would not just leave him alone, and that if he wanted to be safe in Northumbria, he would at some point have to deal with Edmund. 
he also probably figured that there's no time like the present, while Edmund would be feeling his way on the throne. So he gathered his army, and he went south. Opinion in the Danish lands of England was probably split about whether Olaf was a good thing or a bad thing. But Olaf could not rely on getting much support from the Danish people. Olaf was a Norseman, a Norwegian, and the Danes had no great love of the Norsemen. However, one of the later chroniclers gives a lot of credit to one of Olaf's supporters called Orm. Orm was a Danish Jarl, i.e. the equivalent of a Saxon thane, and clearly an important man to Athelstan and Edmund as well, having signed charters under their rule, and it's likely that he was in control of the borough of Leicester, and therefore was an equivalent to an alderman. This effectively means that when Jarl Orm joined Olaf, helped his invasion succeed, and married his daughter to him, this was an act of betrayal as far as Edmund was concerned. This seems like a good time to introduce you to another shady character at this time, the Archbishop of York, Wolfstan. We know that Olaf is a pagan because he minted a silver penny in York, which is famously in Old Norse, and bears the raven, the symbol of Odin. Despite this, it seems reasonably clear that Wolfstan was on Olaf's side, and with him throughout his second shot at the Northumbrian rule thing. Wolfstan will continue to be a player in this story, and some have even attributed the role of kingmaker to him. It is terribly difficult to tell, because the records are so patchy, but see what you think, and maybe we can have a fool or a knave vote at the end. Certainly, as you'll see, the English kings knew something's up, but somehow he manages to survive. Olaf Guthrithson was also joined by Olaf Citrixen, whose father Citric we've already met as ruler of York in the early part of Athelstan's reign. I'm going to call him Citrixen, and the other Olaf. I'm sorry for this, but you try to say Guthrithson a few times, it's really not that easy. After 50 years of pretty much continuous English success, Olaf would have come as something of a shock to Edmund. Edmund had very probably thought Olaf beaten forever at the Battle of Brunenburg, but before he knew it, Olaf had carried his raid over the Midlands and arrived back at the gates of Northampton. There, Olaf had his first setback and was apparently unable to take the borough, so he turned northwest to the traditional centre of mercy and power, Tamworth. Olaf stormed the fort and ransacked Tamworth and the surrounding countryside. In the process, one of the prisoners he took was a noblewoman called Wolfruna. Wolfruna was very well off, and as you may or may not know, Saxon women held property in their own right on an equal basis to men. Anyway, Wolfruna was apparently ransomed or rescued, since she is subsequently credited with the founding of the town of Wolverhampton. By this time, Edmund had finally recovered from his shock, gathered his wits, and got an army together. He found Olaf's army returning with its plunder near the Danish borough of Leicester, which presumably him and his friend Jarl Orm were using as a base for operations. It's once again not exactly clear what happens here. The version of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle I have would have me believe that Edmund probably had Olaf and Wolfstan whipped, but the sneaky Norseman manages to slip out, and then Edmund decided to be nice to him despite all the ravaging and stuff. This doesn't seem entirely convincing, or rather not at all convincing, and the story is more likely that Edmund tried to get into Leicester and doesn't manage it. So they come to terms, and quite likely terms brokered by the Archbishops of York and Canterbury. The treaty established peace, but it also gave the five boroughs back to Olaf, and this has to be regarded as a stunning defeat for Edmund. Edmund returned to Winchester to lick his wounds, and probably planned vengeance. Olaf turned his mind to Bamborough. 
Clearly, his earlier success had delivered him most of Northumbria, but not the very northern part of the kingdom, formerly known as Bernicia, north of the River Tees, and he wanted that too. We know that Olaf got to the very far north, ravaging the church at a place called Tyningham, now in Scotland. We also know that he died up there, but we don't really know if Bernicia is brought back into the Northumbrian fold or not. We will see later in 949 that there is still an English high reeve in Bamborough, called Oswulf. Anyway, the main point is that Olaf died in 941, to be succeeded by his friend Titrixen, great-grandson of Ivar the Boneless, who now wanted to have a second go at being king of Northumbria. To be brutal, his second attempt was no more successful than his first, because Edmund had recovered his war and was going back on the offensive. In 942, just two years after he had lost them, Edmund stormed back through the five boroughs and won them back permanently. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle breaks into poetry again and sings, The Danes had been long under Norseman's rule, forced at need, held in chains of heathen slavery, suffering long until released again. If we take this at face value, the Danes saw Edmund as a liberator, and certainly there is great rivalry between the Danes and the Norsemen, and many historians do accept that point. So despite the example of Jarl Orm, the Anglo-Danes appear to be well on the way to assimilating into a new English society. Meanwhile, up in Northumbria, the Norsemen did their very best to make things easier for Edmund by starting a civil war. Wolfstan and the Northumbrians appeared unimpressed by Citrixon's performance, and they went back to Olaf Guthrithson's family for a king, bringing in his brother Ragnald in 943 and chucking Citrixon out. But Citrixon had no intention of going quietly, and he's back in 944. Meanwhile, both of them decide that having Edmund's friendship and support was doubly important, to both stop Edmund coming north and to help against their Norse rival. So both of them appear at Edmund's court, and both of them are baptised into Christianity, presumably in the currying favour process. But it doesn't work. Edmund brought an army north in 944 and retook York, against a Northumbria divided amongst itself. Both of the kings were thrown out, but we'll be seeing Citrixon again for a third hack at Northumbria before too long. Throughout the crisis, the kingdoms of the Scots and of Strathclyde had taken different approaches to the Northumbrians and English, with Strathclyde supporting the Norsemen and the Scots supporting the English. So now there's a frighteningly confusing series of events, which I should really avoid, but I'm not going to. I look forward to a series of complaints and corrections. OK, so the King of Strathclyde at this time is one Domnall ap Owain, or Domnall III, while in Scotland we have Malcolm. Edmund gathered an army that also included the King of Difford, and therefore presumably was a major expedition that required all of his resources. And this is where it all gets very confusing. It's clear that Edmund ravaged the part of Strathclyde that we now call Cumbria, one tradition has it that he fought a battle against a king called Dunmail in the passes of Cumbria, with Dunmail dying at the hands of the king himself. Edmund then brutally blinded Dunmail's sons, while Dunmail's surviving warriors threw the crown of Cumbria into Grisdale Tarn. The legend has it that Dunmail lies at Dunmail Rise, waiting to be called to come and free his kingdom, just like Arthur. I'd never come across this story before, and one is bound to wonder just how many kings there are elsewhere in England lying under mounds of turf waiting for the call. OK, but the trouble now is that there is a Dunmail as King of Strathclyde much later. 
So either we have two Dunmails, or one of the sources is fibbing. But the upshot was that Edmund, after his victory, apparently gives the lordship of Strathclyde or Cumbria to Malcolm, King of Scots. The idea was to buy the loyalty of the King of Scots, and also to establish clear and defensible boundaries and frontiers for the English kingdom. Although this is clearly not a long-lasting relationship. Dunmel is soon back in control of the lands that Edmund had given to the King of Scots, and Malcolm is soon raiding northern England. But it's an interesting policy, and a precursor to something very similar we'll see in the reign of Edgar the Peaceable. Basically, we know two more things about Edmund and his reign. The first relates to a piece of foreign policy, where Edmund continues to support his brother's policy of support for King Louis in his attempt to regain his kingdom in Francia. The second is about his death, which is a story that adds a little colour to the politics. Edmund organised a bash on the Feast of St Augustine at his royal villa in Pucklechurch in South Gloucestershire. During the supper, Edmund spotted a criminal called Leofa that he had previously had exiled, and in fury he stormed over to where the man sat, grabbed him by the hair and threw him to the ground. But Leofa had hidden a small knife and he stabbed Edmund and tried to escape. As the king lay bleeding to death, Leofa was hacked to pieces by his retainers. Edmund was 24 when he died. One has to wonder why he was called magnificent, but in the end, despite a pretty poor performance against Olaf Guthrasson, he'd come good and kept the north within the kingdom. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's probably one other thing worth mentioning while I think of it, and I could do this anywhere really, but let's do it here. It regards a social change that is clearly beginning to go on as the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms grow in extent. So in earlier episodes, particularly in the thrilling one where we looked at the laws of Ina, happy days, we spoke of a society which is relatively unstratified, with a direct relationship between the public governance, as identified in the body of the king, and the ordinary free person, whether that be a thane or a churl. So as part of that, we have an alderman, the public servants who manage a shire. But as England becomes bigger and more complicated, so the power of the thanes grow, and the aldermen begin to become less of a lord, who also just happens to hold a public office, and more of a great magnate, who holds a number of public offices and uses them to build his power base. We see an example of this in the family of someone called Athelstan Halfking. He wasn't called Halfking at the time, that was a name given to him by a later chronicler, but it's useful to use the phrase just to distinguish him from King Athelstan, so I'm going to keep using it. We don't know his date of birth, but we do know that he died in Glastonbury Abbey in 957. The family history starts with Athelfrith, Athelstan Halfking's father, who became an alderman in southern Mercia under the rule of Athelflaed, Lady of Mercia. King Athelstan then appointed Athelstan Halfking as the alderman of East Anglia in the early 930s, and by 940, Athelstan Halfking's brothers had become aldermen too, of Kent, Mercia and Wessex. Meanwhile, 
Athelstan Halfking's wife, Alwyn, was to be the foster mother of the future King Edgar, after Edgar's father died in his infancy. An enormous amount of power was therefore held in the hands of one family. There appeared to be no consequences of this in Edmund or his immediate successor's reigns, but it was a signpost to the future and not a good one at that. Meanwhile, the position of the churl gets progressively worse, in a gradual slide towards the serfdom that is such a characteristic of the continental feudalism that the Normans bring to England. This happens because it doesn't take much for the average churl to get pushed into an economic corner, especially during the Danish wars. One raid that destroys all his crops, and a churl is unable to feed his family. So he's forced to go to the local thane for help, and the thane gives the churl a deal. OK, you can become a serf then. You become my man, swear an oath of fealty, and give me payments in labour from now on. If you do that, I'll help you out, and you and your family can avoid despair, starvation and death. An oath of fealty was not lightly entered into. Here's one from Anglo-Saxon England. By the Lord before whom this sanctuary is holy, I will to my thane be true and faithful, and love all which he loves, and shun all which he shuns, according to the laws of God and the order of the world. Nor will I ever, with will or action, through word or deed, do anything which is unpleasing to him, on condition that he will hold to me as I shall deserve it, and that he will perform everything as it was in our agreement when I submitted myself to him and chose his will. This kind of serfdom was inherited as well, so once done, never redeemed. The argument is that for good or ill, these were inevitable developments, and part of a progression from an early settler society to a more complex one, and certainly this is a trend that continues in late Anglo-Saxon society. The other subject I should introduce before we say goodbye to Edmund is that of Dunstan, who was to be a major influence in Anglo-Saxon society for the next 40 years. He was born to a noble family in 909 and was very well connected. His uncle, for example, was the Archbishop of Canterbury. He picked up a job at a church, and his learning, piety and connections soon landed him a job at the court of King Athelstan. He became a favourite of the king, which managed to put the backs up of various other members of the court, resulting in him being beaten up and thrown out on charges of witchcraft. But he regained the favour of Edmund, and in 944... Edmund appointed him to be the abbot of Glastonbury. Dunstan was to be a major force in the forthcoming reform of the church in England, and constantly part of the political story too, whether in or out of favour. Edmund left two sons, Edwu and Edgar. Edwu was the eldest, but was only five years old when his father died. So the ever-pragmatic Anglo-Saxons did what they'd done in the time of Alfred, and made Edmund's brother Edred king. At first all went well for Edred. He was crowned by the Archbishop of Canterbury in Kingston-on-Thames in August 946, and early the following year he travelled north to Tanshelf, near what is now Pontefract, to receive the fealty of Archbishop Wolfstone and the Northern Lords. But history was about to repeat itself, as it had done for Athelstan and Edmund, because the Northumbrians were not yet quite ready to bend the knee to a King of England. This time it is the superbly named Eric Bloodaxe. Eric was the favourite son of the Norwegian king Harald Fairhair, the king who had ruled a fair proportion of what is now Norway. Being the favoured son was a good thing for this aspiring king, because Harald could accurately be described as fertile, given that he had as many as twenty sons. 
and this is where it is thought the name Bloodaxe actually comes from. Not for his success in battle, which as we will see is a bit limited, but because he set about systematically murdering as many of his brothers as he could. Eric would have worried little about his human rights record, since it worked, and he duly claimed the throne on Harold's death. But his reign was brutal, unpopular and short, and he was pushed off the throne with apparently very little difficulty by one of his surviving brothers, Harkon. This owes something to England, in fact, because Harkon had been sent to England and been adopted as the foster son of King Athelstan, as I think I said in a previous episode. So Eric was at a loose end, and filled his time raiding the western coasts of Scotland with more success than he'd had as a king, and that led him to Northumbria in 947, where he was enthusiastically received. The wording of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle definitely indicates disloyalty by the Northumbrians, and you have to wonder if our friend Wolfstan wasn't part of the whole thing. Edward came north in fury. He burnt and ravaged parts of Northumbria up to Ripon north of York, but then appears to have been leaving when he was attacked crossing the River Eyre at Castleford, and the rearguard of his army was badly mauled. Edward's response was to shout at the Northumbrians and threaten them with an utter devastation of their country if they didn't recognise his rule and throw Eric out. Cowed, this is just what the Northumbrians did, and Edward returned home satisfied. But his rule lasted only a few months, before another old favourite appeared back on the scene, namely our Olaf Citrixen, who reappears back in 949. Meanwhile Malcolm of Scotland also breaks ranks with Edward, and raids Bernicia, i.e. the very northern part of Northumbria, where an Englishman, Oswulf, is now ruling as the High Reeve. At this point, Edward seems to have thrown his hands up in exasperation, since we don't have any record of him trying to remove Citrixen. Instead, it is Eric who came back in 952 for a second go, and he drove Citrixen out. That, finally, is the last we'll hear of the persistent but ultimately unsuccessful Citrixen, who returned to Ireland. He is the king who will have the distinction in 980 of being decisively and comprehensively defeated by the Irish king Malachy, in a battle that broke Norse power in Ireland 25 years before the more famous battle of Clontarf. Citrixen fled to Iona, and he died there in 981. So, we're back with Eric Bloodaxe, with his court at York, called Jorvik of course by the Norsemen. His second reign itself lasted only two years. Eric was portrayed by Maccus, the son of an Olaf, and Earl Oswulf, the High Reef of Bernicia. The use of the word betrayed in the Chronicles is interesting, because it suggests that Eric, Maccus and Oswulf had a deal going. Anyway, in 954, Eric, the last king of Jorvik, was killed in a battle at a place called Stainmore, which is on the Roman road from York to Carlisle, well north of York. With him also died five kings from the Hebrides, two earls of the Orkneys, and his brothers Ragnald and Herrick. And what about our friend Wolfstan? Well, in 952 Edward lost patience with Wolfstan's king-making, and had him arrested. But somehow he manages to wriggle out of this, though he was clearly not to be trusted in Northumbria, and was instead appointed to be the Bishop of Dorchester. He finally died in 956. So this is finally the end of the story of the unification of England. Elderman Oswulf was formally made the Elderman of all Northumbria, and now there were no more Norse contenders coming to claim the Northumbrian throne, and the Battle of Stainmore was decisive in the story. 
Taking a more general view, the failure of Eric Bloodaxe is significant. He was part of the Norwegian royal house with the kudos and reputation needed to bring all the landless Scandinavian warriors to his banner, but despite this he was still unable to succeed. It was clear that England was no longer easy pickings and would not be conquered by relatively small bands, but would need a national effort. Edred died after his nine-year reign in 955. Throughout his reign he was a sick man, suffering from a chronic digestive disorder. After 953, fewer than one-third of his charters are witnessed by him, which suggests that he delegated much of his authority to others. He was buried in Winchester, and the line passed back to Edmund's sons, Edwu and Edgar. Next week, we get one last hurrah of a glorious Anglo-Saxon history, with a second golden age for Anglo-Saxon England under Edgar the Peaceable. And then we'll be into the decline of the old English monarchy, which I personally probably will find more than a bit depressing, but with much more by the way of intrigue, murder and destruction to keep us all entertained. Thanks again for listening, and do go and visit my website at www.historyofengland.typepad.com for the additional materials and to leave any comments you might feel you want to. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 